Magister Dixit. Magister Dixit. Magister Dixit. Magister Dixit. Welcome to Magister Dixit, a podcast that invites you on a journey into realms of expertise, imagination, and occultism. Delve deep into the minds of those that have dedicated their lives to mastering their crafts and how having an esoteric or supernatural influence has shaped that path. In each episode, we will engage with magisters, true masters of their respected fields, as they share their unparalleled insights, unconventional knowledge, and their unique perspectives. Venture into the mystical as we converse with filmmakers, musicians, and renowned authors. Listen to their perspectives on their respected disciplines and how being a practitioner of occultism has influenced their craft. Remember, in the realm of knowledge, Magister Dixit, the master has spoken. Today, we're exceptionally honored to welcome the insightful Ronnie Pontiac to our podcast. His incredible journey serving as Manly P. Hall's research assistant, screener, and substitute speaker has illuminated his path and left an indelible mark on the field. His diverse contributions to literature, including ventures into the award-winning documentary world, position him as a true pioneer and explorer of hidden dimensions within the tapestry of knowledge. In this episode, we had the distinct pleasure of delving into the layers of Ronnie's experience and wisdom. From his role as the key figure in Manly P. Hall's inner circle to his profound insights documented in American metaphysical religion and the co-authored work, The Magic of the Orphic Hymns. Ronnie Pontiac joins us with a wealth of knowledge and unique perspective. Let's welcome Ronnie to the show. All right, Ronnie. Well, first off, I'd like to thank you, uh, welcome you to the Magister Dixit podcast. And uh, the first question I had is basically, if you could perhaps maybe share some of the insights into your incredible experience working with Manly P. Hall as his uh, research assistant. Yes, um, I did three things with him. I was his research assistant. I became one of his designated uh, substitute lecturers, the main one. And I also became his screener along with my wife, Tamara. And all three of those things were very different experiences and were all part of this education, I think, that he was trying to give me. And they're very different. So briefly, being his research assistant was my favorite. To be able to work with him on a daily basis and ask him questions and have lunch with him in the vault and have him say, here, take this end of the scroll and, and I'll unfurl it. And it's the Ripley scroll, one of the great alchemical artistic creations of all time. How, how did you come in contact before we even get into all of this great stuff? How, how did Ronnie meet Manly P. Hall? Well, I, I, it was a very unlikely candidate. Uh, I really was a, somebody who as a teenager was rather a criminal and my band was a nihilist kind of racist band with a lot of bikers supporting us. And I was a really nasty character. Um, 
I fell in love, which, which was the first step to becoming a human being, with somebody who was an honest and, and is an honest and upright person who taught me a lot about how to live. But I was still very cynical, and so was she. And so I got, I think it was like uh, 20 bucks or something for a haircut for my parents. And, and of course, doing what I always did, I decided to spend it on something else. And I went to the Bodhi Tree bookstore, which was at that time like this mecca of metaphysical bookstores. And they had a thing they called the used branch, which was used books in this little converted stucco house. Is this in uh, Los Angeles? Yes. And so I went to the used branch looking for a book called Atlantis, Mother of Empires, which I'd seen as a kid in an occult bookstore in Santa Monica. And it somehow struck my imagination. I wanted to shoplift it desperately, but it was too big and bulky for a kid to get away with. And it always stuck in my mind. So I was there actually looking for that. The funny thing about that is that that book was written by Stacy Judd, who was the architect of the Philosophical Research Society. So in a strange way, I was already drawn toward him and toward PRS. They didn't have a copy. Were, were these your first uh, kind of uh, run-ins with the occult? What, what, what got you uh, well, interested I I did begin earlier, um, I would say like, um, I don't even sure how old I was when I saw the Atlantis. I mean, I think I was only about 11, something like that. And then about 12, I ran into some books on witchcraft in a local bookstore. And I was really attracted to the babes on the cover. <laughs> but then when I opened it up, the stuff really talked to me. I'd been a kid that was really into Halloween. And this made a lot more sense to me than any of the monotheisms that I'd been exposed to as a kid. And then when I became more of a criminal type and I had my band, I was reading uh, Crowley, Anton LaVey, uh, Spare, and, and I was really looking for something that, I mean, the funny thing was I, I dismissed them because to me, they seemed like romantic idealists. And I was looking for just hard boiled nihilism <laughs> and, and commitment to death and disillusioning optimists everywhere. And I couldn't find it. Very I, negative I, person. <laughs> I was a very negative person. And so I, I, I was a great believer in the power of the lie, for example. And I had no social contract. I, my, between how I was raised and what I experienced in schools, I just felt no sense of loyalty to anyone or anything. And so uh, once I got disappointed with those books, I pretty much stopped reading uh, occult materials and focused instead on the music world and on, on the politics of all that. And when I went into the Bodhi tree, it was a whim. And I found an old sixth edition of the Secret Teachings of All Ages, which was under the title An Encyclopedic Outline, etc. And this was the sort of reduced size version of it. It was black and white pictures, but it still looked like a medieval tome. It was beautifully bound and it had this uh, very flamboyant picture of him in the front looking like an actor from the 1930s or something. And I was immediately smitten. I put it on layaway, eventually got enough money to buy it. And when I brought it home, it just blew my mind. I read a chapter every night and then I would come out to Tamara, who was the girl I'd fallen in love with and I'm still with. 
uh, and I would tell her, oh my God, okay, so get a load of this, you know, and I would tell her all the stuff that I had just read and it converted us into a different perspective on the world. The book's dedication is to the rational soul of the world. And that idea is what the book conveyed, that rather than being in this utter chaos where the strongest are, are the winners, that there was a rhyme and reason to life and that there were all these amazing people who had devoted their lives to exploring that wisdom and who at many of them risked their lives in order to share it with yeah, at yeah at times in history you're absolutely right mm -hmm. and so that moved me and and of course the things that they had to say about the relationship between nature and, and a human being and and the gods and pythagorean geometry and mathematics as a spiritual path and just all of it bacon shakespeare and it just inflamed my imagination and and uh he just really spoke to you it sounds like as opposed much, to yeah. the crowley and the uh, you know reading spar like, and everything I, I felt like it it like somebody had like taken the top of my skull off and suddenly there was all this this air to breathe and the world was so much vaster than i expected now i should say that later i returned to crowley and i found i found actually some great value in there but I found out from a friend to my shock that Manley Hall was still lecturing because looking at the, the photo and how old the book was, it just seemed like he, there's no way he could still be around. And she said, oh, he is lecturing in Las Feliz for a dollar, wow. 11 a.m. every Sunday. So, uh, you know, at first I really was afraid to go because of who I'd been. And I just thought, Oh, there's no way I'm going to be welcome here. I'm going to feel so out of place amongst people like this. But Tamara eventually prevailed on me by saying, if you miss this opportunity to see him, he's an old man. I mean, won't you feel terrible that this author who changed your life was right there and you didn't go see him because you were too afraid of what he'd think of you? And he had created this shift in your life. I mean, you were excited reading about it and sharing it. And, you know. Exactly. So you had so, to go. So I, I, I went and um, it was an amazing experience. It was a beautiful Sunday afternoon and, and actually late morning. And we, we showed up, mostly older people. We were the youngest people there and they seemed thrilled to see young people there. So the, the greetings were, were very friendly. That surprised me and delighted me. And then we sat down to enjoy the lecture and he did something that I later saw him do many times and heard about from many people, which is that he looked straight at me and he delivered a message that was so pointed toward me that it blew my mind again. And I had been the same person who told me that Manley Hall was lecturing in Las Feliz was really into Edgar Casey and was really into the idea that California was about to sink into the Pacific and was moving to Virginia Beach. And she had spooked me. And so I was like, oh man, I think maybe we should move to Virginia Beach. And Manley Hall looked straight at me and he said, uh, people who suffer uh, paranoia about natural disasters that is actually based on the kind of life that they had been living up until this point. Mm. And so I felt that he had just talked straight to him. He also talked straight to Tamara, who had been walking along and she noticed 
uh, a lovely little weed flowering that had, had kind of busted through a crack in the pavement. And he looked straight at her and he talked about the strength of nature to burst little flowers through cracked pavement. Wow. Now, later we found out that he couldn't see us. <laughs> his, <laughs> eyes, his eyesight wasn't very good at that point. We were probably just colorful blurs to him. And yet he did this over and over again. When I began to work with him, I heard this story many times from people. So there was all kinds of discussion. Is he channeling? Is he an initiate? Uh, is he just so deeply in the Tao that, that whatever he says flows from his mouth to the right place? There were all these theories, all of them really inadequate, but he certainly had that skill. And so I decided that I wanted to volunteer. We both did just do anything that we could to be around him and to help him do what he was doing. So we went down there. We talked to someone who was screening the volunteers and they liked Tamara a lot because she had office skills, <laughs> but I had nothing. And they asked me one key question was, do you have any knowledge of foreign languages? And I said, well, not really. I said, but I did grow up amongst people who spoke uh, Russian and French and German and Polish. And so I've heard these languages my, my whole life. She was like, hmm, okay. Well, they called the next day and said they wanted to give Tamara a job. <laughs> <laughs> and I was the kind of guy that said, no, 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 no. I'm not sitting at home with a cast while you go work at PRS. Screw that. <laughs> so she turned him down. So to my shock, the next day there was a call and it was Manly Hall wants to meet you. Please come down tomorrow morning. Wow. Yeah, exactly. So we went down there and while they tried to talk her into taking the job, I was shown into Manley Hall's office where there was a phalanx of these elderly women who ran the PRS standing next to him and most of them with their arms folded. But he had a big smile on his face and he was sitting behind his beautiful ornate uh, Chinese desk. And he said, come on in and make yourself miserable in kind of a W.C. Fields meets Barrymore voice. And so I sat down and he pushed in front of me this big stack of paper. And what it was, was the galley for his alchemical bibliography. And he said, I want you to edit this for me. And I said, you've got the wrong guy. I, <laughs> I have, I've just read about alchemy in your book. I know nothing about it. I don't even know what a bibliography is. And there's just, this is way past my abilities. And he said, no, no, you'll be fine. I'll give you guidance and you'll see. Wow. So I took it, but I felt like this is wrong. And the vice president of the society, Pat Irvin, who had served in the military during uh, World War II, went screaming around the side of the library and then stopped me as I walked out and said, give me that back. And I said, yeah, that's a good decision. And wow. I felt great anyway, because I met him and it was just such an honor. I got home and there was another call this time from his secretary. And she said, Mr. Hall, your office, I'm sorry, Mr. Hall, his office, 9 a.m. in the morning. Okay, so I went back. This time it was just him. And he said to me, from now on, you take orders only from me. If anybody tells you anything that contradicts what I tell you, you come to me and you tell me that. 
And so I said, again, I, I really think you've mistaken me for somebody else. I don't really have the ability to do this. And he said, young man, you will do very well on this project. We will meet every single day in the morning. I'll show you what to work on. We can have lunch in the vault and look at the books that you're working on. And you're going to basically follow my instructions. And did you so, have any kind of background in editing or nothing, journalism or nothing, English literature or anything? Nothing. I mean, nothing, just high school. And he had such confidence in you. It was incredible. And he, it turned out that he was right. And what the situation was, was that the person who'd been hired to be the, be the bibliographer, who was an academic and a really good one, um, he wanted to keep in the notes for the various books and manuscripts, records of the bodily fluids that the alchemists were, were experimenting with. And Manley Hall thought that that was dangerous and also that for his audience, it would be offensive. And he thought that the bibliography was a limited edition that was mostly for the people who liked his work. And these were wholesome, mostly middle-class people. And they'd be offended by all these bodily fluids that were popping up in the alchemical recipes. Well, the bibliographer refused to remove it because he felt th this is important. This is information he that did, academics... Yeah, yeah. He, he had documented it and everything. Yeah, and, and academics would want to know about it. Right, right. So at that point, Manley Hall decided he's got to go and we've got to find somebody else who can do this. And that was me. So I did get the help of the bibliographer as I began. He was very kind to me. And, and then I took it over. And mostly it was just double checking everything and making changes that he wanted. But it was an incredible education because, I mean, he handled, you know, the amazing uh, triangular St. Germain Trinosophia. Yes. He handed me his copy of it and said, look at this. Wow. And all those different books that are listed in that bibliography, most of which are now at the Getty, they were in my hands and and he was telling me stories about when he got them and what they mean and it was it was just stupendous and being able to see him work this man was in his middle 80s and he was writing two articles three articles at a time working on a book maybe two books doing the business of the place, preparing for his next lecture, writing things for, for the journal and for the, the little notes that he sent out to his subscribers and just an dynamo. Still such a very busy man, even, even in his and 80s. clear headed. So he could do things like, he would tell me sometimes, go get me this book. And he would tell me the shelf it was on, what the cover looked like, and how far over it would be. And this was a vol, I mean, we're talking 50,000 volumes at least in this library. And he's just visually recalling like, oh, it's the yes. fourth book over on the fifth shelf. Exactly. Wow. So it was an amazing education in changing expectations about aging. He also had such joy in, in acquiring knowledge. Uh, it was almost childlike. He he just loved finding out new things. If a book came out that, that had good research on a topic of interest to him, he was ex genuinely excited about it. And he was just constantly absorbing information. Yeah, from what that, I read, yeah, I'm sorry. Uh, please, but, go ahead. Um, 
as a young boy, didn't he spend much of his time in the library uh, reading all of these books? And everything? his mother had a good collection uh, based on the Theosophical Society, which was a huge influence on him in the early years. And yeah, he was reading the Secret Doctrine, Doctrine and Isis Unveiled, and uh, and then a lot of the source books to those, like Thomas Taylor and, and that kind of material, at a very young age. And they were moving town to town, and he wrote at one time that that he met uh, a a very uh, let's say a, a shaman of high attainment of an indigenous shaman when he was living in one town in the West, and who this person taught him things about uh, Native American religion, and and so he he just absorbed all this information. But he was only eighteen years old, uh, I believe, when he came to Los Angeles. The, he told me that the sidewalks were still wooden at that time. Wow. Yeah, I'm yeah. sure. I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. The the old days of L.A. and early Hollywood land and everything. Yeah, like. exactly. In fact, one of his very first lectures was given at a house that Raymond Chandler, as a as a really a boy, a teenager, was staying at. And then, of course, Raymond Chandler would become this fantastic uh, author of suspense mystery books based usually around Los Angeles. But there they were together uh, as Manley Hall gave one of his first lectures. And so he flourished here in L.A. and, and right away he developed a following and he became the leader of what was called the Church of the People. And he got all kinds of support. He told me that he was able to acquire those books because of uh, Claire Pierpont and others who, uh, I'm not sure if that's the right name actually, um, but uh, these were oil heiresses, a mother and daughter, and they gave him a lot of money over time, including uh, they conferred on him royalties from some of their oil holdings that he had coming to him through most of his life. So this money allowed him to travel into the world, into Europe and into Asia, and to acquire these manuscripts. And he told me that when he first got to Europe, this was in between the wars, that that kind of material was considered junk because people had become so cynical because of World War One mm -hmm. and uh, the, the feelings behind communism and fascism were uh, amplifying materialism. And so these kinds of materials on, on uh, astrology and alchemy and such were considered worthless nonsense from rubbish the past. yeah yeah it's just mm -hmm. like yeah. and he said that he went into bookstores where he would find piles of it just like crammed away not even taken care of but just moldering in the dust and they would be sold to him for ridiculously low prices and he had the knowledge wow. and the eye to pick out these masterpieces that he was able to acquire for very little money and so that became um, really the the foundational resources for traveling and acquiring all of these rare books that mm -hmm. were not really considered of much value at that time in the you know in a uh, newly uh, industrial age type of exactly. uh, world where you know uh, I mean you're kind of in the uh, what is that the uh, the government that was set up after World War One. The Weimar Republic, is it, I believe? Yes, exactly. You know, and that through the whole period, it was the socialists fighting the fascists and the communists and, you know. So I, I, I could see these clash of beliefs and, you know. Yeah. And it also, he told me that it impressed him 
on the fragility of, of these works of wisdom. And that that was a great motivation for him to create the secret teachings of all ages. It was his way of preserving all of this wisdom. And so that collection became the basis of that book. And people often ask me, how did a guy so young write a book like that? And he told me it was a collective effort. He was the guiding force, but he, he, I remember him smiling, telling me about how one of the people from the church of the people uh, opened up their house to him and to other members of the church. And they would have sections of the book laid out in manuscript all over the house in different rooms. And wow. he would be going room to room and going, yes, that put that there and put this here and overseeing so, you know, the assembly. Yes, of exactly. It, it was almost wow. like, like creating a zine, except it was this, this amazing tome. Yeah. So it was, there was a community project behind that. So and working with him was, um, was still, still something that, that makes me smile. And I, I'm in disbelief that I had such good fortune, especially because we became friends and I'd, go out and have dinner with him and with his wife and go to their house a lot. And I wound up working with her as well. And so it was just a dream come true. Being yeah. his, um, his designated substitute lecturer was, was quite a, a wild experience because I had no desire to lecture. And Pearl Thompson, Pearl Thomas, who was the uh, head librarian at PRS, she approached me one day and just said, it's time for you to start lecturing. And I, how, many, how many years was this? Uh, only about a year into it. Wow. But so I, very I accelerated. Yes. I, I had proven myself and they thought, you know, you need to do this. You could talk and, to talk in a year already of yeah. being immersed in the world. Well, of being immersed, I mean, hearing all his lectures, you know, every Sunday and meeting I mean, with him every day and working on yeah, the bibliography. I was absorbing a lot stuff. of information. And so um, I went to him to talk to him about it. And he said, yeah, I think you should do it. And I said, well, you know, how do I do it? <laughs> I've never lectured before. And he said, if you can't just stand up and talk for 90 minutes on a subject, you shouldn't be talking about it. <laughs> so I said, no notes. And he said, no notes. He said, just go up there and talk about what you know. So I thought they were going to give me a gig in the little room over the library with a portrait of Madame Blavatsky, but they put <laughs> me on Sunday morning in the big auditorium for my very first lecture. Of course. <laughs> and uh, I was, to say the least, nervous as I went out there and got a very nice greeting from a big crowd who were curious, who is this kid that's been hanging around Manly Hall? And so I did a great job, apparently, because they wanted me back constantly after that. And eventually, let's say within about a year after that, I was made his designated substitute. He had a couple other people that had been substituting for him, but he decided that if he couldn't make it, he wanted me to present the lecture. And that was interesting because they were his titles. So for example, there was one called Marriage in the New World Order. And I had to figure out what to say about that on short notice. Right. So I'd be busy, you know, trying to understand what did he mean? I talked to him. What do you mean by new world order exactly? Because that's a very loaded, even then it was a loaded phrase. Yeah. What was the and scope it, of what he was talking about? Yeah. In that particular and he was talking instance. about a very idealistic sense of uh, something closer to uh, the Federation and Star Trek um, <laughs> where everybody's getting along and they're all enlightened and, 
Uh, it certainly wasn't any kind of uh, autocracy that was going to be run by the elites. <laughs> so I would have to lecture on that kind of thing. And that was an interesting experience because I, I learned, for example, about the pressure on lecturers, right? That, that both the people that are hiring you and the audience are trying to shape the directions that you take. And I spoke with him about that, and, and it was fascinating that he also felt that, that he said that in the early days, he liked nothing better than to lecture to a small group of people about something that was a very uh, deep, intellectual, complicated subject like Neoplatonism. Mm. In his early days, he would do series of lectures on Proclus, Plotinus, Iamblichus, and and it was, uh, but then, as he said, as, as it went along, he realized that his audience needed practical advice for living more than anything else. And that most of the questions that were being brought to him were not intellectual questions about the great doctrines of history. They were people asking, how do I deal with depression? How do I... So he felt that all of this teaching that he had studied had practical answers to those questions. How to cope with today's it, society. Yes. So he made it his focus to distill that practical wisdom out of those documents and then share it with people in a language that they could appreciate and make some use of. But he missed being able to lecture on these more complex subjects. And I certainly felt that also. Uh, the people would tell me, oh, I'd sure like to hear you lecture on this, or um, if I came up with something to lecture on that didn't perform as well because it was more obscure, um, the people booking me would, would be saying, why don't you go back over to that side of the subject? And, and that's something I've been very aware of uh, as I've gone out over this past year to uh, talk about my my books and meeting all sorts of wonderful podcasters such as yourself and and seeing how that that is at play with them as well and and how uh, i was surprised at how some people who were really going into sensationalist topics actually underneath it all were much more interested in manly hall and in platonism and in, in these these much more wholesome really traditional subjects but they needed to talk about these other things in order to maintain a large audience. And sure. So that pressure is, is something that affects uh, everyone who teaches metaphysics, in my opinion. And it's something that is one of the great pitfalls, I think, of, of trying to do it for a living. So all of those kind of things um, were part of that experience. And then finally, being a screener, that was... Uh, that was the graduate work and very disillusioning on a level. Um, Interesting. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Well, he was he was seen as the the last resort by many desperate people. He seemed to know about everything. And so people who had exhausted psychology and, and just all the various approaches, normal uh, churches and and such and, and were still tormented would seek to meet with him. And of course, he also attracted a, a large number of hustlers and also attracted crazy people. I mean, just people who, who were literally in some kind of imbalance, uh, chemically or otherwise, or had been traumatized. And, and they were bringing uh, very strange ideas. And so my and, job. And, and was, how was his demeanor with them? Would he just hear everybody out, or no? He my job was to 
to take the phone calls and the letters and then to meet with the people that he would first of all thin them out right away and say no 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 mm -hmm. and then he would say these you check them out for me and let me know if any of them are, are deserve a meeting and so I would go through these letters and speak to people and follow up and it was the common denominator in most cases was desperation. So you would find people such as ceremonial magicians who realized that they had not completed the circle properly during the banishment and then became convinced that they were being tormented by a demonic entity or spiritualists who ran into some friend on the other side who wouldn't stop talking to them and was torturing their lives or people who uh, were convinced that they were growing a third eye when it was a medical condition. And they felt he was so knowledgeable about all things occult and esoteric that he would have to have the solution for them. Exactly. And sometimes he did meet with people who were dealing with those kind of situations. And he had very uh, interesting solutions for them. So, for example, at one point, sometimes I was allowed to be there for these meetings so that, that I would know how he handled it so I would be better at screening and he would say something like for instance I remember one case where um, the person who came to meet with him was having troubles with a poltergeist a ghost that was creating all kinds of havoc in the living environment and he had a very simple solution he he said I want you to get two lighting fixtures put a red bulb in one and a blue bulb in the other. He said, I want you to turn on the red bulb, no other light, sit in that room and think about all these disturbances and think about how they make you feel. This will draw the entity. He said, when you feel that the time is right, I want you to simultaneously turn off the red light, turn on the blue light. And then I just want you to breathe and feel free and know that you are protected and that they will be going back to where they need to continue their learning and that you will be free to continue your own life. And it worked. And was it the light or was it the faith in Manly Hall? The belief the, the faith in Ma that Manly Manly Hall is the man and that he exactly. and he has to know this has to work. He wouldn't he wouldn't give me something that's nonsense to do. Exactly. And so other times I met with people who were uh, aged and infirm and, and they met with him and they were interested in death and were they ready to die? And sometimes these were people that he met with many times. So at one point I was there when he met with a Mason and he told the Mason whom he knew well that, you know, yes, you're ready. You know, your, your consciousness will stay awake during the process and you will be you and you'll remember what you learned and you've, you've done enough work. Uh, so this was a great relief to this man. And Freemasonry was a very important part of uh, Manley's life as well. Wasn't he a 33rd degree? Uh, he was, you know, he wrote about it in his youth when he wasn't a Mason. And is that the, Ros of, is that the Ros Rosicrucian one? Uh, it's like Rosicrucians and the Freemasons or something? Well, he wrote a book called uh, The Lost Keys of Freemasonry that was, that was really the one that brought the Freemasons. But the whole Secret Teachings book was so full of, uh, of Masonic references and, and information gleaned from Masonry, including chapters on Masonry that revealed a lot of the secrets of the, the higher degrees. 
Now, a lot of people um, obfuscate that. They, they think, oh, well, he must have been psychically, like he's an initiate, so he knew all this stuff. And I think he was reading Albert Pike, and he was reading a lot of the other books, like uh, the encyclopedias that were available, these amazing, like five, six volume encyclopedias, like McKenzie, um, which had everything about masonry. And Albert um, Pike, his books go, you know, the, uh, what is it, the uh, dogma one. I mean, it really goes into great details. Exactly. So I think he had access to that. And I think that there were also masons that were helping him with his knowledge, sharing information with him. And he eventually, he did become a 33rd degree. He, he was inducted into masonry. And he had friends all through his life who were masons. Um, I actually was sent to lecture on his behalf a couple times to Masonic temples. Wow. And I found them to be, you know, they're mostly older people at that time. They were usually very down to earth working people and uh, none of the, the sort of elitist ghosts that, that pop up so often and, and stories about them. That's like before when you were talking about when you first went over to the PRS and uh, there was these like older people there and they were all really happy to kind of see you or whatever. Yeah. Uh, I'm a Blue Lodge Mason and it was like kind of same thing. It was like, you know, this young guy, you, you, you know, and they're, uh, they're concerned about making sure that people remember the proper ways of doing things. Yeah. And also and, there's so much... Uh, so much knowledge and so many materials and buildings and it's like theosophy and, and mm -hmm. some of the Rosicrucian societies are in the same situation now where um, mostly older people running everything, looking for young people to get interested and in wondering what will become of all of this amazing stuff that we've accumulated over time. Like the Odd Fellows. I mean, that's basically all but antiquated and you know, gone yeah. now. I mean, exactly. I, don't, I don't know if there's any activity in that really. Yeah. So it's just something that's a challenge that, that many of these organizations are facing now that we're actually the, the center and the, you know, the core of metaphysics in America for a long time, for generations. Was Manley involved with the Rosicrucians? He, in the early days, his and mother- the a, and, and the uh, AMORC out there in California? Well, he, yeah, he was involved with Heindel, um, actually okay. with uh, Max Heindel's widow. Um, who taught him astrology and taught him how to self-publish books, even called her mom. She, she was wow. such a great influence on him. And, and she, that's who taught him astrology, who then, yes. taught, who then taught you astrology. Yes. And he, he sent, uh, she, she presented him to the Theosophical Society and to the other organizations as somebody that was really a young master. He was comparable to Krishnamurti in a sense as somebody that was just so brilliant at such a young age and had such a gravity about him. So immersed and, in it. Yes. And so that her, her endorsement was an important part of, of him becoming a success. And later they, they split kind of because uh, he, she didn't like that he got into hypnotism and she also warned him to stay away from Hollywood. And in his early days, he occasionally would work on a screenplay or he appeared in, in kind of a promo for a movie that he came up with the idea for that was about, uh, it was a mystery. 
uh, about the 12 signs, the 12 zodiac signs, and this Chinese astrologer who did Hollywood the crime. Did Hollywood use him as a reference or anything like um, that? Or, uh... You know, he did not have good experiences. Um, the funny thing is I wanted to see these things, and he said that fortunately they were, as far as he knew, no longer exi in existence. But they're now on YouTube, which are much to, which would probably be to his chagrin. But uh, there is one, for example, of him hypnotizing uh, Bela Lugosi um, for a role that he was playing, and it's wow, pretty. It's amazing. pretty weird looking. It, it's when you look at it, it just has this kind of uh, cheesy, creepy quality that's so unlike the man that I knew. It's like the in the way that we were just talking about. Uh lost manuscripts and books and everything that I'm appreciate. Same thing in Hollywood, a lot of film that just uh, yeah. not, not, not having the foresight to realize that all this stuff should be coveted and protected. And yes. It's lost, so much was lost all over the world. And, and it's also, it's really difficult to preserve film because people think that once you get it on some sort of a digital format, you're good, but you're not. So it, it's a constant challenge to keep the films alive. Yeah, what is it even like uh, the place where they, uh, the cave where they do, uh, I think it's like the glass discs and everything that, you know, they put like all the different libraries on. They've been doing like core testing on them and they see they're not even going to last half as long as they thought that they would. Exactly. They got to yeah. come up with something else. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. there's if there's companies today that, that uh, have nothing but they just keep reloading content onto computers onto these mm. huge servers these masses of them because the only way if you have to keep reloading it so that, that you don't lose it and what about an e what about an emp yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> be catastrophic for fresh start <laughs> yeah <laughs> now I, uh, you've written a couple of books mm-hmm and the first one I like to talk about is American metaphysical religion. Mm -hmm. And like, uh, what motivated you to delve into the extensive research that you did and that's required to, to write something like American metaphysical religion, exploring 400 years of occult and spiritual history in the United States? It started in the vault during one of our lunches and I noticed this, this rather large leather tome that was down on the bottom shelf, and it was called The Platonist. And I wondered what it was, and he said, oh, that's a good one. Pick that up. That's the good so one. <laughs> I, yeah, so I grabbed it, and I opened it, and it was a newspaper. It was a newspaper called The Platonist that had been published around 1888, the time of the gunfight at the OK Corral, in St. Louis, when St. Louis was still a cow town. And there were there were cowboys all over it, and wow. it it captured my imagination. I, I asked him, "What is this? Like, how does this even happen?" It completely changed my view of of America in a sense, in just that one little tome. And so he said, "I you know I don't know much about it." He said, "There isn't a lot of information about these people." Uh, Alexander Wilder wrote for it, and he knew some things about Alexander Wilder, who was a jerk. We would call it holistic physician who wrote textbooks and was a teacher at colleges that taught eclectic medicine mm -hmm. and was the editor of Isis Unveiled for Madame Blavatsky. 
Wow, and wrote, interesting. And, and also wrote books himself, um, very much influenced by the Hermetic, Neoplatonic, alchemical tradition. But Thomas Johnson, the publisher, he didn't know anything about. And there were some interesting things in it, such as Abner Doubleday, who uh, did not invent baseball, but was said to have invented it, was a Civil War general. He was actually the first to, on the Union side to fire a cannon at Fort Sumter against the Confederates. And he translated um, works by the Parisian magus uh, Eliphas Levi in this Platonist. So I was just, wait a minute, the baseball guy was translating Eliphas Levi? Was he a mason or anything? I, I don't know. And, and in, the, in this thing called the Platonist that was being published around the time of the gunfight at OK Corral, what is this thing? So I, I went looking for information. I couldn't find anything about it. And, and then there was this funny twist of fate, which was uh, after we had left PRS, he, had, he asked us to leave because he could see what was going to happen. He was declining. Everybody was declining. And it was going to become a, a battle over the assets. And he didn't want a couple of kids like us in the middle of it. So we were at the Whiskey on Sunset Boulevard, and there was a store across from it that had been there since the days of Jim Morrison and Jimi Hendrix called the Hippodrome, no, the Hippocampus. And so we walked in there because they often had cool things, and it was late at night. And there on this shelf was a bound copy of The Platonist. Wow and a couple of very early Thomas Taylor books. And so I was just amazed to see it. This is, we're talking something, you can get it online now, but, but at that time, I don't know if there were five copies of this thing in the whole world. I mean, it was, you know, a newspaper, it doesn't survive. And right. so the store had been owned by <clears throat> the woman who, who got older and had to retire. And so we walked up to the guy who was managing it for her and said, are these books for sale? And he said, uh, I believe so. Let me call the owner. And he went to the back of the store. He came back a minute later and he said, are you interested in these books as decor because of their covers or do you want to read them? And I said, oh, definitely to read them. And she sold us all three books for a hundred bucks. Wow which I don't she even knew know you were going to read them. It wasn't just because they yeah, looked neat or exactly. And so that was So now we had a copy of the Platonist to take home with us. So we became obsessed with trying to find <laughs> out what the story was here. And eventually I ran down this book that was published in 1962 called Platonists of the Midwest. And it had some of the story, but it, it really raised more questions than it answered. And then there was a revolution in academia in the 2000s. It kind of started very slowly in the 80s and 90s, but in the 2000s, it took off. And for the first time, esoteric studies were acceptable. And you had many professors going into this new field, including uh, one who coined the term American metaphysical religion in her really wonderful book, uh, A Republic of Mind and Spirit by Albanese, really amazing book. 
And so now that this was a legit field of study, all these archives were being opened that were never available to the more amateur, quote unquote, occult writers. Right. And you also had academic rigor being applied to this information by people who believed that it was not their job to judge it. It was their job to present it as accurately as possible within the context that produced it. Well, this was just a revolution and the number of books and studies that came out were in the hundreds. And I was very fortunate because at that time, Google and Amazon would let you search any book that they had in their listings, the whole book. And they, they sold all the academic books and listed all the academic books. So I was able to read all of these academic works through that. And then of course, academia.edu, and mm -hmm. uh, JSTOR and all the, the academic papers are going on these sites and you could have a free membership and read this stuff. And then I also found, I don't know, I don't know what the change was, but so many of my friends in metaphysics were telling me, well, you know that the academics hate us and they're, they're so mean to us. And I was, I never really listened. I just sort of reached out to them whenever I needed to ask a question and I found them to be incredible. I was mentored by so many academics as I worked on this material who would introduce me to other academics and, and, and send me stuff I wasn't supposed to have. And um, it was really, really wonderful. So um, that was part of the motivation. And, and the main motivation was that the, the America that was being revealed by these studies was a completely different animal from the America that we all grew up being taught about. To discover that these esoteric traditions were not just here, but were at times dominant throughout the history of the colonies and into the history of the country. To see, for example, that in the early days we're told that these were uh, good Christians who came here and that America is, was, was very much a Christian country. And then you suddenly discover, well, actually, there are early records that say that they weren't going to church. We have letters from uh, preachers and priests complaining to their superiors that they can't get them in the pews or not reading the Bible and that they keep going back to their own superstitions from wherever their origins were. You had Jacob Bamey and the Rosicrucians and Paracelsus here at the earliest times. I mean, when, when the Huguenots come here initially in order to colonize in Florida, and they brought with them Paracelsian medicine and books by Paracelsus and the Jacob Bamey's mysticism and Rosicrucian ideas that would become Rosicrucian. I mean, they weren't even, this was pre-Rosicrucian, right? This was like in the 1500s. Right. And, and so this material, there were alchemists practicing in Florida uh, based on Paracelsus in the 1500s here. And so when uh, Thomas Harriot, who I write about in the book, who was um, the scientist that was working for Sir Francis Drake and for um, the creation of the Virginia colony, and he was sent here as one of the people to survey the possibilities of doing such a thing. The Roanoke colony? Mm-hmm. And he wrote a book that is kind of horrifying where he lists 
uh, all the amazing natural resources of America and discusses how they can be exploited. It's like a map for what would happen later. But he was practicing alchemy on the beach there in Virginia. And they actually found remnants of his alchemical lab. So wow. the fact that Yale University and Harvard had alchemical labs, that, that one of the presidents of Yale uh, addressed the other presidents of colleges in America and strongly uh, urged that Kabbalah be taught at colleges. All of this information was here. There was, it was being uh, cross-pollinated. Uh, even the pilgrims were were not nearly as as uh, hostile to the esoteric as one might think. Right. So this was um, a revelation to me, and I thought that it was something that I really wanted to share with people. This vision of America. So you know, most of the occultists and metaphysicians and esotericists that I know, we sort of have an inferiority complex. We feel like, <laughs> well, we're just the freaks on the fringe. You know, we're not part of the mainstream American story. When you see all of this new data, and I mean, my book is 600 pages roughly. It could have been 1,200. There's so much information. You feel that it's our country, that that the essence of what makes America... Uh, a place where the ideals of liberty and diversity uh, have been celebrated and that, that, that reinvention of religions. Like one of the things that uh, has been interesting to me is when I do podcasts with people who are outside of America, I often get asked, what is it about America that you guys invent so many religions? And it's because we came here to get away from people who were trying to tell us what to do and many of us were bringing books that, that had visions that were being built upon by successive generations. So there's so many experimental uh, communes and villages and efforts to create a new kind of society. And so that I found very inspiring and timely because we seem to be in this crisis in America where so many people have lost faith in, in American ideals and in America, and they think of it as just this uh, corrupt Christian elitist white kind of a, of a creation. And when you see this alternate history, you see how every race has contributed. You see how, how actually esotericism has been there uh, feeding the roots of this country from the very beginning and all the way through. Absolutely. I have to agree. With you. And, uh, I'm originally from New York and even though downstate, just outside of Manhattan and stuff, however, just knowing about the history of New York and uh, what was it, the burned out district, you had this whole area where there were like a lot of, you know, uh, a lot of preachers and, uh, you know, a lot of fire and brimstone in, in the type of uh, preaching that they were doing. And then, uh, oh, I'm trying to remember the the person's name in Poughkeepsie that also became like a clairvoyant. Or Andrew whatever. Jackson Davis. Yes, yes. And just how that, uh, just even in New York alone, how much mysticism and esotericism was going on, you know, uh, just everywhere, you know, yeah. in, in all in all of this culture, and like you said, and it's from all these people who immigrated over here. It just depends on when, but you know, even your immigrants that were coming over in the twenties and thirties had all of these, mist all this mysticism that they yeah. brought over as well. 
And these traditions, there were eclectic traditions established, like in New York, I, I write about St. Mark's of the Bowery Church, which is famous now for its dance group and its poetry gatherings. And this is the place where Patti Smith first performed and Ginsburg and the Beats first had their meetings there. And all of that was because there was a preacher by the name of Guthrie, who William Guthrie, who mm -hmm. uh, when he took over that church for the Episcopalian diocese, he invited people like Khalil Gibran and um, Isadora Duncan and uh, indigenous tribal chiefs and Hindu swamis. And he combined all of these materials into this kind of uh, very eclectic, uh, very much an idea of, of syncretism, right? That, you know, that the truth appears in all of these different forms and all these different times and places. And so it's very moving to me that that place eventually became a sanctuary for people like Allen Ginsberg and Kerouac and, and later for Patti Smith. And, and even today is developing young dancers and young poets. And um, so yes, there's a really rich history there. And spiritualism, that's a whole nother thing. I mean, New York was a center of spiritualism. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, when you talk about America as a culture too, I mean, let's, let's remember too, even presidents have been involved, you know, uh, the first ladies and the presidents have been involved in occultism and mysticism. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, even uh, Ronald Reagan, uh, with, uh, his wife was very into astrology. Yeah. And uh, what, what was the woman that uh, she used to work with? It was the yeah, you know the tabloid uh yeah yeah tabloid astrologer pat something I think. yeah I'll, um i can't i can't draw it up but I know it's exactly like the one about. that they were into like you know she was the one that was always in the tabloids when you were checking out at the store you know she exactly tell you her 15 prophecies for you know 1984 exactly like that, yeah you know? <laughs> and of course it goes back to lincoln with his, his wife having a seance in the white house Yes, yes, yes. I mean, you, the, just the the more that uh, you kind of think about it, let's also think that Ouija boards also come from the, the United States. Was it William yeah. Fund or whatever from Baltimore, yeah, yeah. you know? Yeah. It was just, such a rich history of, of, of being the beginning of, of movements. It's yeah. not just in spiritualism. Yeah, like you said, it's an explosion with the spiritualism, with the photography, where they would catch what, whatever soul was behind yeah. you and everything. It was a significant part of the Civil War because in the South, the feeling was that between industrialization and spiritualism, that the North was really satanic. Mm. And often there were articles run in Confederate newspapers about how these crazy corrupt women who are spiritualists and, and have the nerve to be telling men what to do. And uh, this, it's a split that's still here, but <laughs> it was very, very visible then. Yeah, absolutely. And then, like you brought, you brought up earlier in the interview, Edgar Casey. you know, mm -hmm. again, another uh, person really had an impact in the United States at, at that time, you know? Yeah, very much. Uh, uh, you know, uh, was uh, very, I, I think uh, was a lot of the ads in the back of magazines and stuff like that kind of drove his whole thing. And, you know, even as a kid growing up, and I remembered certain magazines like, you know, 
you'd go to the back of them and there was all of these send five dollars for you know uh book of black magic yeah you know or or learn hypnotism right tarot cards all of it yes yes you know you know as well as the guy you know learn how to be like johnny atlas and kick right (laughs) sand you know don't have sand kicked in your face anymore exactly (laughs) how was the book uh received when it came out it's it's very interesting. It's been very well received. Uh, I didn't get nearly the kind of uh, trouble that I expected might come from it. I think part of that is that it's not particularly popular. Um, it's the kind of thing that that a small group of people really love, and they use it as a reference guide and and mm-hmm. such. And it's kind of creeping its way slowly around. Um, it's gotten some wonderful reviews. Um, sometimes it's one of the interesting things about being an author is that your tones are sometimes mistaken. So some people have said that I'm cynical and that actually it reads more like a, a you know, look at all this crazy stuff, which really <laughs> it isn't at all. I do try to be funny, but I'm very respectful and, and uh, I actually love all this, these people and all this material. Sure. It, you, do, it, came, I, it came from a loving place too. It didn't come yeah, from a I do recognize cynical place. Mm-hmm. I do recognize that I do. I'm very honest about the frauds, and I do point out that sometimes the frauds did really amazing things, like wise, incredible things, and sometimes very wise people committed acts of fraud out of desperation. And so I do try to to present it very honestly and not uh, lionize anybody. I think they're more interesting that way because we're all human, you know, it, it's, that's the beauty of it is rather than chasing these superhuman perfected initiates, to me, it's more exciting to see that many of these people were just like us and yet they were able to have these tremendous insights. And of course they were able to, because it's the human heritage. That's our inheritance is to become enlightened. And particularly like what we're talking about is the American metaphysical religion and, you know, the experience, you know, and we just talked about New York and all of that, but we could certainly jump back to California and talk about Pasadena and the Agape Lodge and Jack Parsons and, and then the layer of L Ron Hubbard crossing over that and how much of Scientology is similar to the OTO and the Golden Dawn and, you know, definitely all very interesting topics, but what, what makes them, uh, I think very alluring to us is they happened here. Yes. And you've got the Theosophical Society has been here for a very long time. And it seems and- like they almost all wound up in LA. That's what I found, like L.A. and California. The magic of California, Hollywood and everything. Well, you know, Madame Blavatsky uh, believed that California was going to be the the place where the next root race would manifest. And I think that was part of the reason that Manley Hall centered his activities here. Again, in the early days, he was very influenced by theosophy. Did did he have much correspondence? Did he have correspondence with Blavatsky or...? Not that I know of. I think that she was uh, already gone. I think. Well, she. Had, uh, yeah, I'm not yeah. so. I'm not very versed in the time uh, frames. Yeah, I think that. she. Would, I think he was still a kid when she passed on, and uh, but he did have a lot to do with the Theosophical Society. And Krishnamurti was one of his friends, 
And he told me stories about how he used to drive up to Santa Barbara, really to Ojai, to uh, hang out with Krishnamurti and, and to compare notes. And wow. I, I once asked him, what did you talk about? And he said, uh, well, he said, you know, we talked about our lecturing careers and about the organizations we were involved with. And we talked a lot about girls and about <laughs> baseball. <laughs> so it wasn't all work. It wasn't all shop talk. Right, exactly. <laughs> Which is good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I wish those had been recorded. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> um, what did, let's uh, try to frame this scenario. What was... Manly P. Hall's thoughts on Aleister Crowley and Thelema? Well, he, he once told me that, um, that if Aleister Crowley, how do you put it? I don't want to get this correct. He said, he said, if he wasn't mad as a hatter, he would have been the poet laureate of England. That's what he said. Now he had almost all the books, but they were under lock and key. And you had to ask for them because he felt that they, if they get in the wrong hand, he had seen too many people who kind of took rides on, on Crowley and went in the wrong direction and then came to him okay. desperate. And so he felt it was, it was too, uh, too strong in a sense for, for some constitution. Just let people borrow them and read them and have easy access exactly, to them. Exactly. So they were under lock and key. And he also had a, a rather, uh, Let's call it naughty uh, Crowley poem in manuscript that he kept in his desk drawer. Now, people have suggested that this was some kind of uh, perverse interest he had, like it was pornography that he was hiding or something. But I actually think that that Crowley was um, somebody that that was a a goad to him because the two of them were publishing in the beginning, Manley Hall was also publishing these gorgeous editions with these beautiful bindings like Crowley specialized in. And I believe that, of course, Crowley was far more successful and, and Crowley's fame spread to a degree that Manley Hall only sampled briefly hmm. uh, during the forties when he sold out uh, Carnegie Hall and was a very famous lecturer. But it, after that, it subsided somewhat, and he's never really been all that well known, not compared to Crowley. And I think that he would he would look at that and see Crowley. Um, you know, Manley Hall was such a sweet, kind of wholesome, uh, almost I would say an innocent kind of a soul. Um, that Crowley's sense of humor and his his scatological kind of uh, love for shocking people was something that I, I don't think Manley Hall really understood completely in the sense that it was it was all in fun mm. and it was part of the teaching process. I think that instead he saw it as an out of control person who had attained fame and was harming people. And so he would look at this to remind himself, I've got to keep going. I've got to create content that that will help people that helps people and gets them in the right direction and stuff, exactly right? rather than put them in chaos or exactly yeah because not everyone can handle chaos and mm -hmm. he had such a uh you know an audience of families and retired people and uh people who really weren't uh, able to understand crowley but i'm sure in the 1960s when crowley popped up on sergeant pepper uh, it must have been quite a, a thing for Manley Hall to wonder, how come this guy, you know, 
<laughs> You're right. Right. Absolutely. <laughs> so uh, when we just left off, we were talking about how uh, uh, trying to save people from chaos. And what that made me think of also is what would uh, really quick, what, what was Manley's uh, opinion of Peter Carroll and chaos magic? Uh, kind of something that's so something, different than all of the other type of studies. Yeah, that's something that I, I mean, he was pretty down on anything involving ceremonial magic. I Why mean, is that? Like, he felt that, I, I think it was again, because he ran into so many people that had been damaged by it. It, it was like, it was like playing with a hot wire, you know, mm -hmm. and he preferred more contemplative approaches to achieving enlightenment. And he felt that ceremonial magic, I think he felt that it attracted people that were trying to uh, bend nature to their will mm -hmm. in his experience. And that was something that he wasn't really uh, a supporter of. And so although having said that, he was a big fan of, of uh, Iamblichus. And after all, Iamblichus is the root, I mean, I mean Egypt, but but he's really the root of so much ceremonial magic and right. his his work inspired Ficino and Agrippa and and Levi and and all the way down the line so he did appreciate it from a neoplatonic point of view as Proclus and and Iamblichus were approaching it but I think that the more modern forms of it he did he did recommend reading Agrippa mm -hmm. so I mean and he had great respect for the hymns of Orpheus and and clearly understood that they were a form of of ceremony and of magic but he he think i think he felt that books like arthur edward waite's book on black magic and that they would get people into trouble because he kept finding people who were coming to him saying yes he had he, he, he had all and, these like uh the magic misfits coming to him with psychological yeah, problems. Exactly. And, and so there were so could, many schisms. How could, he put, how could he endorse it or put his thumbprint on something like yeah. that and say, you know. Exactly. Oh, and I, and that, I remember at that time, just one aside, that I was invited to go see Robert Anton Wilson lecture uh, by someone. And they they pointed out to me, they said, you know, you see those those nefarious looking characters over on the balcony on the right. And I said, yeah. And he went, that's the golden dawn. And he said, now look over on the left and you see those nefarious looking characters that look like they should be over there, but they're over there instead. That's the OTO, right? <laughs> and he, he knew all the players and everything. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Did they, did, did they, uh, I guess, uh, did, did those organizations reach out to him? Did they like try to uh, sometimes get caught up in his world or whatever? Uh, you know? Sometimes I, I think they knew that they weren't getting a particularly positive response from him, but mm. but they were certainly around, and mm. I, I met people that were associated with those organizations when I was working there. And, yeah. and if you're a, and, and if you're and if you're a fan of this stuff or you know like a purveyor of it, even the people that you're maybe not like you still it's in your it's in your uh wheel shed and you're very exactly. yeah, you're very it's familiar what they're yeah. talking about or what their position is or something Absolutely. of that sort and yeah. the interesting thing that i just thought of it, with the ceremonial magic thing is i have to say like in uh in my mason lodge some of the most powerful ceremonial 
I don't know if you could call it magic, but as far as feeling this amazing feeling, I have to say, yeah. you know, and Freemasonry, I mean, it's yeah. definitely uh, very powerful, very powerful stuff, you know, especially yeah. becoming a master Mason and, you know, yeah. and uh, I don't think that uh, I've ever encountered anything as powerful. It's a beautiful experience. And it's something that, that he liked, I think, the structure that this was a, a, a very well-structured organization or set of organizations that were um, very much based on uh, cooperative support and on community responsibility and such. And so if we remember like in the 60s and 70s, like the ceremonial magic community was kind of in the heart of it was it was hippies so-called mm -hmm. you know it was it was people that were experimenting with drugs and he was very against that that whole idea you know it was the rebel it was the rebellious 60s and exactly you know, satanism and drugs and magic exactly. and free love and exactly yeah so that those were all things that he thought were dangerous and and so um and I think it was generational. I mean, we have to remember that this is a guy who was born in 1901. So his perspectives on things were, mm -hmm. were formed very early and, and they were very different. It always reminds me when people like to maybe paint HP Lovecraft with a brush of negativity. And I, I think that, yes, it's negative, but it's a sign of the times. I don't think he yeah. was a unique individual. And like, I don't think he was the only one in his neighborhood that maybe thought that way. Right. And, and he was probably wasn't the only one in the county or the state or anything. Yeah. It's just things, something, uh, just, uh, I think the progression of humanity and we, you know, uh, that anytime some things don't age well. You know, and you've, got, you've got to draw a line from Poe to Lovecraft. And Poe was deeply into hermeticism. Yeah. You, you know, and it's, uh, I think uh, being a victim of the time that you grew up in sometimes uh, uh, creates the view that today isn't as, uh, is so different than the way we view things today. Robert Anton Wilson's idea of reality tunnels, and he used to illustrate it by saying, um, for one generation, the reality tunnel of uh, sexuality is cocktails, hotel rooms, and high-heeled shoes and negligees. And then for their children, it's weed and sleeping uh, bags and, you know, tennis shoes. And Absolutely. so he said, but, but it's the same thing. It's the reproductive urge attaching itself to certain imagery and rituals for a particular generation. It's like conservative parents raising liberal children and then them growing up to be liberal parents and dealing with conservative minded children. It's like you almost have to rebel against what raised you or where you came yeah, from. And, Emerson and, pointed that out. He, he used to say that nature would always uh, reward the, the parent with the opposite of what they were. So the, the cowboy outdoorsman would wind up with an intellectual who didn't like to go outside. 
<laughs> exactly. And isn't that like, a, I think we always look at the nepotism in Hollywood or in music that way too, you know, oh, you're the son of George Harrison. You should be, you know, this phenomenal uh, artist or something. Yeah, you know? hardly ever, right? <laughs> yeah, it's true. <laughs> <laughs> it reminds me of Mel Blanc when his uh, son tried to take over doing it. And it just was, it was close, but it just wasn't it, you know? Exactly. <laughs> Now, uh, the other thing I wanted to talk about is your latest book, The Magic of the Orphic Hymns. Now, I was going to ask you what inspired you, but I kind of, you kind of alluded before that Manly uh, really enjoyed it. And uh, is the last project I worked with him on, actually. So that was, it, it had special uh, meaning to me. It was Thomas Taylor's translation. He was doing a reissue of it for PRS mm -hmm. with an introduction by him. And that was the last thing I worked on. So that that really stuck with me and to such a degree that I was I was still in college at that point and I started studying Greek so I could actually read um, with the help of uh, the little Scott lexicon, the, the Greek and for yourself. And that, and yeah, yeah. yeah. And then that turned into um, since Tamara and I were going into music and we were leaving PRS and we didn't, it was very awkward leaving PRS because um, for one thing, the guy that sort of took over and was taking over um, the life, the lives of the halls um, and who we believe very likely may have um, murdered him or was at least in some sort of nefarious situation with him, having just had the halls sign away their rights to him. And then this convenient death that occurred so shortly afterwards under very weird circumstances, wow. we had warned him as screeners against this guy. And for whatever reason, it was the one time that he ignored us. And especially um, Tamara, my wife, who was a very dear friend of his, um, he, he always listened to her. Like I would, I would tell him, you know, I think this and that, and he'd look at her and then she'd say, uh, uh I, I noticed this. And he always went with what she saw and, and she warned him so emphatically that the last time she warned him, she burst out crying and, and was hysterical. And he didn't want any of that because his wife was somebody who was very prone toward, uh, sugar spikes. She was a diabetic. She didn't know she mm. was, but she got really carried away with her work. And so he liked it nice and quiet. And when Tamara did that, that was, it was like, look, I told you to leave, you know, now leave. And so we decided to do our own simplified translations of the hymns and perform them at the window of our apartment um, in the middle of, of LA. And it was a goodbye to PRS because we couldn't really, we knew we had so many friends there, you know, and what were we supposed to do? Go back and say, well, he told us to leave because you're all going to die and there's going to be a big war over the assets. I mean, we, you know, we couldn't say anything. So we disappeared basically and it felt terrible. And, and then we were entering this world of music, which the world of music I had come from was like, you know, like Satan's slaves and devil's henchmen and mm -hmm. like, you know, and now we're trying to do something positive in the music world at a time when hair metal was was still ruling the world. It was toward the end of it. And so 
we decided to do the hymns as just this gesture of goodbye to PRS and to him and a gesture of hello to music. And we had extraordinary experiences with them, like weird. We weren't doing them as experiments in the, the paranormal. We weren't doing them as magical rituals to attain some kind of an end. We were just doing them as this sincere kind of statement to the universe of thank you for PRS and Manly Hall and please help us, you know, be aware and make the right choices as we enter this area that's fraught with, with danger. And so we had things happen like when we did the hymn to Aphrodite, um, a couple walked by and they stopped right underneath. We were up on the third floor, so they couldn't hear us. And they were, they stopped right underneath us and they kissed. And we had, we did the hymn to Athena and in broad daylight in the middle of the city, a great horned owl showed up and sat on the telephone pole nearest to us. Wow. And I know. And we finished the hymn to Athena. It swooped down and right at us and then up and over the, over the roof. And so we were just, a lot of things like that happened. And so we, we thought, okay, it's, now we knew that Marsilio Ficino, who was kind of the founder of the Renaissance, had said that the Orphic hymns are the strongest magic. And he said that, that they taught him love and that love is the key to magic. And so that really got us thinking about what he had said. And we found that as we kept working with the hymns and rewriting them, and, and Tamara went into deep uh, research about the cults of the gods, you know, so that we could inform our hymns with details of cult from those times to give the reader a sense of, of the correspondences associated with those divinities because the priests who would perform these, which in their original form are kind of boring and formulaic, very repetitive, uh, maybe even monotonous, but they knew those were more like just notes for them because they knew all of these details of cult and they would use them in the rituals in the form of incense they chose and the symbols that they gathered around themselves and the time of day that they chose and the day that they chose. And that's missing from the hymns. So we tried to infuse them with those details so that a modern reader could feel the flavor of that particular deity. And so we found that they seem to be almost like a book of days in the sense that, that every single, they're like a 360 degree view of life, of, of life as a human being. And every single aspect of human life is covered in one way or the other. And it, they reveal divine wisdom. They, they harmonize us. So for example, um, death, that hymn, which closes the, the hymns, it reminds us that the death frees us from what the Orphics call the weary wheel uh, of grief, of deep grief. And that also awareness of death sharpens our appreciation for living. And so each of these hymns is referring to the divine wisdom that can be found in the way that human experience is structured. And they, they, they harmonize us, like tuning hmm. us, 
to that perspective of the higher wisdom. So they're very powerful. They, they, they're, in fact, Facino said that they are healing, that, that he had used these hymns for healing people. And of course, the whole Renaissance was really inspired by the Orphic hymns in that, first of all, when he was uh, desperate to, to spend his life translating Plato and Plotinus and, and the Orphic hymns, and, and, um, but he didn't have the money. He was a, a lowly Catholic priest. And this was around, uh, I think this was 1462. He wrote, um, he, he did a hymn, performed the hymn to the cosmos as a gesture to the universe asking him to somehow help him to do this work. And something like the next day, he received a letter from Cos Cosimo de' Medici telling him, I'm giving you a house and a village to support you. And I want you to spend your life translating these materials. We're waiting for you at the house. Please bring your lyre and sing us the Orphic hymns. Wow. And so that's what he did. And he had a lyre on which was painted Orpheus. And his nickname was Orpheus to his friends. And his inner circle included Lorenzo the Magnificent and uh, Leonardo da Vinci and Pico della Mirandola, who wrote the, on the dignity of man. And um, so they, they went out into the world. So, for example, um, we have a diary entry from uh, Poliziano, the composer, saying that he spent all night, I'm sorry, spent the whole evening listening to Ficino playing the Orphic hymns, and he was so inspired that he went home and he composed music all night. And eventually Poliziano did a play for the great festival that was called Orfeo, Orfeo and Leonardo da Vinci did the sets for it. So they were wow. this, this Orphic, yeah. So this Orphic influence was just just rolling into Europe out of Florence, really beautiful. And so that was very inspiring to us. And then same thing happened in Orphic studies, where there was this amazing uh, revolution of new interest in academia that revealed all kinds of information that we didn't know. And so we, we were studying that along the way. And then we decided that we had to put this together and we tried to blend it so that we wanted the, the hymns as we presented them not to be, you know, perfectly accurate representations, translations, but to be poetic uh, works of art that conveyed what we thought was the inner meaning of the hymns. And we did an introduction that covered the history of the influence of Orpheus and the hymns in the West, because it is, again, amazing. Hmm. Uh, almost every counterculture of any significance that has ever happened in the West had Orpheus in it somewhere. And it just all the way through the troubadour culture, uh, all the way up to the beats. Right. And, um, and so when we saw this, we were just amazed. I mean, the world of opera, the, I mean, just everywhere was Orpheus, Orpheus, Orpheus and showing up in the most unlikely places. Even in the Rosicrucian uh, revolution, Orpheus is in there. You find Orpheus in the myths that are being related in the original books. And um, so there again, we wanted to share with people this powerful way of relating to life. 
Was there a lot of revelations in you doing your own translations where you were like, this is totally different or like, yeah, uh, yeah, there uh, were where it, was, it, it just totally meant something different to you after you translated. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And, yeah. It was because you get, even though the funny thing about Orphic studies in academia is that nothing's proven. Um, you have schools that think there was a, basically a fairly well-organized Orphic movement, probably created by Pythagoras mm -hmm. and by the Pythagoreans, and that it was kind of a literary movement, but then itinerant priests took it up in order to bilk people who had recently lost rich relatives, and they would guarantee them a, you know, a good place in the afterlife if you paid them to do the ritual. Plato wrote about this with a lot of disdain, but yeah. Plato is Orphic. I mean, as Olympia Doris the Younger said, um, Plato paraphrases Orpheus everywhere. And so this Orphic influence was so huge, but at the same time, there are academics who argue that uh, for instance, the famous golden leaves are not Orphic, that, that they, we don't, can't really prove that they're Orphic. And those are the and, lost hymns? Well, they're, they seem to be, uh, they could be coming from um, oracles. They could be instructions from uh, teachers of the mysteries, not necessarily Orphic, but they're definitely in the same league as the Egyptian Book of the Dead. They're, they're an instruction uh, they call them in German totem passes, which is death passports. And they're, they're giving you the words, usually the, the most famous supposedly Orphic formula, I am a child of earth and of starry heaven, but my race is of heaven. And so that's what you have to remember when you go over to the other side, because if you don't, you wind up standing in line to drink the, the most immediately available waters, which are the waters of Leith, and then you forget everything and you go back to be born again and have to go through the cycle of grief. But if you remember, you walk on and then you find the, the water of remembering and you the guardians challenge you and you say, I am a child of earth and of starry heaven. In other words, you know, I'm half Titan, but I'm also half Dionysus. Enlightened. Yeah. It's just yes. Like, yeah. And so give me the water of memory to drink. And then you get to go be with the heroes and you don't have to come back again and again in the ignorance of reincarnation. Mm -hmm. So we're not even sure if reincarnation was an Orphic belief. There are academics who argue against it, but I think it was because Pythagoras talked about it and it, there, the connections between the Pythagoreans and the Orphic, um, very convincing argument, I think, that the Pythagoreans were behind this popularization in a religious form of their ideas and of their relationship to the gods. Because let's remember how revolutionary this is. Mm -hmm. This is, you're talking about a world where um, Achilles is idolized, where being a warrior was the ultimate for a man, where women were not uh, very powerful in most cases, and where sacrificing animals and even people to the gods was not just acceptable, but necessary. And along comes this Orphic teaching, and it says, no, no more sacrifice, not even animals, because those animals may be reincarnated people that, you know, this animal that you're killing right now, supposedly to please a God, 
may have been your mother in a past life. And, and by the way, why would the gods be pleased with slaughter? With cruelty. They don't want yeah, that. Yeah, with cruelty. Yeah. Right. Yeah. They want your good deeds. They want flowers and honey, and, and they, they want the beauties of life. That's what the gods like. That's a revolution. I mean, if you imagine being a, we actually, in our book, we called uh, Orpheus the first rock star <laughs> because, you know, he's, he's vegetarian, he's, he's very pro-woman, he's, uh, he's, they say he's gay, <laughs> say, even though he was married, um, just all, he's a musician who could create songs that have all the mysteries of the universe and the lyrics, you know. And, but we also thought of it as just imagine being an Orphic, like you grow up in a culture where it's the big, strong men that are the ones, you know, they're bullying and, right. and, and then suddenly you, you become enlightened and you know that you're going to go on to the stars while they're just going to come back and be born again and again. Yeah, yeah. And you're walking down the street, you've got some of that snotty attitude <laughs> of a hippie or a punk, right? You know, where you're like, yeah, yeah, you guys think you're so cool. You don't know anything. Yeah, you Spartans don't know anything. Right, you know, exactly. All your... <laughs> yeah, you muscle-bound morons. You know, you're going to be stuck here for generations. Over and over. Exactly. So that that's a counterculture. And we argue in our book that Orpheus is the great root of counterculture in the West. That's a, that's really great. And it sounds like to me, like the golden leaves, uh, they definitely contribute in the overall understanding of the Orphic mystery. So you have to, you, that's, you yeah, want that's to why included. we included them. Yeah. yeah. And we even, man, we were, we were blasphemers, man. You know, like we, we took after Anamacritus, who was <laughs> accused of, uh, blasphemy for changing the hymns uh during the time of the athenian tyrants we actually there was a lost hymn to number so we made up one and we decided just to do a hymn for asteria because we thought she deserved one and so we were we were messing around it's a work of art you know we have a, there's a wonderful translation by athanasicus that's the academic translation and um, that's the one that people should go to if they want to see what it's really like. But we wanted to give you an experience. And yeah. so it was it was different. So what is next for you and your wife? What other projects are you working on? Well, we I have a book on the origins of Rosicrucianism, again, based on all this new research, because it seems to indicate that rather than um, a secret group of highly enlightened initiates who may or may not have been invisible at will, um, that what we're actually dealing with are college students under the influence of radical college professors who are reading uh, books by Giordano Bruno and uh, by Boethius, and they have this idea of universal reformation. And they believe that this is the time that, that, that everyone should uh, bring that reformation into their own little corner of the world. Wasn't Giordano Bruno uh, burned at the stake for heresy or something yeah, like was, that? Yeah, he was, And so the, the actual early, you know, the, the great manifestos that launched the movement, I believe, have a lot of humor in them. They, they're very um, lampoonish in ways, although they're very sincere about hating the Pope and about this universal reformation idea. Mm -hmm. uh, but you see, for example, I believe it's in the chemical wedding where father CRC 
um, there's the, the nude goddess. And she actually says to us in an aside, you know, I bet if I got with him, he'd cheer up, you know, that, those <laughs> kind of things, you have to put them in context. You know, it sounds like a college student to me yeah. you know, doing this anonymous book that was about revolution. <laughs> and, um, and so, but they were shocked by the result, you know, that, that both sides of it on the one side that there were so many people writing books saying me, me, I want to be a Rosicrucian, totally missing the point. Right. And on the other side, all these people writing and saying they're evil, they're satanic, they're, they're trying to take over the world, they're an elite, you know. And so to me, and I had this conversation with Manley Hall once because, you know, he really pushed, especially in his early days, the whole idea of the secret orders and these, these initiates of high attainment who could at will do magical things and, and they could appear in your bedroom and tell you that you've earned the right to be guided. The, the, and, the hidden elect, the secret, the exactly. secret masters, Blavatsky's exactly. uh, secret yes, masters. precisely. And so I asked him about that and he said, that he somewhat regretted glamorizing it and that he he actually wrote in one of his last books which was about the rosicrucians um, that he thought that the real rosicrucians were the people who applied the ideals in their own lives so to give you an example of that which i think is a wonderful example and we'll kind of tie this up nicely going back to american metaphysical religion one of my favorite characters from that book uh, John Winthrop the Younger. So here's a guy who in 1628 is running around with his friend trying to find Rosicrucians. He's in England. His father is going to come be the governor of Massachusetts Bay Colony. But he's trying to get to Constantinople in imitation of Father CRC. He wants to go find Damcar and get initiated. And he's disappointed. He's not, he finally does get to Constantinople. He doesn't meet anybody that, that teaches him anything that really impresses him. And the Rosicrucians, allegedly, that he meets in London and Europe really leave much to be desired in his estimation. And so he's invited to come to live in America. When he comes to America in 1631, and this just shows you how, how weird our history is and how different from what we're taught. He comes over with crates filled with John Dee's alchemical gear and John Dee's library, big chunks of John Dee's library. Now, John Dee being Queen Elizabeth's court astrologer and wizard and, and one of the great occultists of his 007. time. 007. <laughs> the yeah, the original exactly. 007. Exactly. And was infamous as this wizard, the sorcerer. And so here comes the kid of Massachusetts Bay Colony and bad enough that he has this stuff in the crates, <laughs> the identifying symbol that he puts on all of his baggage is the Monus Hieroglyphica, Dee's own symbol of alchemy and the greater wisdom, which is like, I always compare that to, that's like if your dad was the head of a big Christian conference in the South and you put pentagrams all over you put pentagrams on all your bags and stuff. Right, and, and this was no problem, you know, that he came with this stuff. His dad was like, yeah, set up the alchemical gear. Let's get this alchemical lab going. <laughs> so he took the ideas of Rosicrucianism. He didn't just go, oh, I'm disappointed. I didn't meet a real Rosicrucian. He said, I'm going to be a real Rosicrucian to the best of my ability. No, I haven't been initiated. I haven't been in any secret order, but I get it. 
and I'm going to do everything I can. So what did he do? He became an incredible doctor. He had these alchemical medicines that he created. He was said to be the doctor for half of the territory of Connecticut. He, he would, this is amazing. He actually hired all these women to go out and he had these color coded packets of his medicines and he gave them like these pamphlets of symptoms and what the appropriate medicine would be because there were just too many people. And people were sent from Europe to be doctored by him. I mean, sick people would cross the Atlantic wow. to get to him. And at the same time that he was doing that, and by the way, if you couldn't afford the medicine, and in most cases, it was free, because the Rosicrucians were all about free healing. And so he also found that the pilgrims in Boston were a little much, and he didn't really approve of where they were coming from like Roger Williams, who founded Rhode Island and who the pilgrims were aghast at because he believed in what he called soul liberty, right? That we should all be free to, to encounter God in our own way. And what the pilgrims really hated about Roger Williams was that he learned indigenous languages and he refused to attempt to convert them because he said they have the right to their own beliefs. Now, he thought that they were uh, they were satanic because he was a Christian, but he had this respect, you know, and he also, Roger Williams, argued in Boston that the state should never be used to inflict punishments or rules in the name of any religion. And they, they really prosecuted him and persecuted him. And so he wound up starting a whole new territory in Rhode Island, where he welcomed everybody. And right. there was alchemists and Kabbalists and people of every race and, and origin. Now, in the meanwhile, John Winthrop the Younger, not just being an alchemical doctor, but also became legendary for disappearing and going up to a place they used to call Governor's Mountain or Governor's Hill. And he'd come back with these bags pure uh, of pure gold in rings. And so they said that he was making gold somewhere on that mountain. Wow. And then he used that, that in order to, so he started a big farm and he started iron foundries and he, he did all this stuff to, to kind of uh, bring up his piece of the colonies. Uh, he was the first governor of Connecticut of the territory. Um, economically and it did work i mean he was doing things that the english royalty were interested enough in that he was able to preserve his power even while there were switches in in the royals that caused other people to lose their territories right he defended the innocent um the pequot indians um had been decimated by disease that was brought over by the colonists and other tribes took advantage of it especially the mohegans and everybody's probably heard of Uncas, if you've seen any of the uh, movies, The Last of the Mohicans. Um, Uncas is presented there as this very romantic character. The real Uncas was a bully, was a really nasty guy. And he wanted the Pequots for his slaves. So the ones who survived were mostly the children women were taken and were, were added to families, Mohican families. And there was this small group of a few hundred of them who were considered his slaves and they had to pay him tribute. And the story went that 
the Mohegans thought it was a great, great fun to go, quote unquote, gamble with the Pequots. And you couldn't say no, because if you said no, they might kill you. And if you said yes, they would just cheat and take everything that you had. And so John Winthrop, the younger, inserts himself into the middle of this mess to defend the Pequots. And at first, the, the commission of the colonies is against him. And they're for, un uh, for Uncas. And they even stand by at one point. They have officers who stand by and watch the Mohegans come into uh, the town that John Winthrop the Younger had built where these people were surviving and rip them out of the homes of, of the settlers and strip them naked throw them into this freezing river and break all their baskets. And, and they stand there approvingly, but, but fortunately, because they did that, the colonies turned against Uncas. And John Winthrop the Younger spent most of his life um, working to regain the rights, the tribal name, and the individual names of the surviving members of that tribe, and he succeeded. Amazing and great personal danger. And he also uh, was famous, infamous in England because uh, whenever the king would, would tell the colonies, there's a lot of war going on, that they were building the empire at that time, you need to send us soldiers, send men for, for the British army. He was the one governor who would always say, oh, well, you know what? Um, we're building the iron foundry and I need every guy I've got, but as soon as we're done, <laughs> or he would not answer at all, like he never got the message and he right. kept his people out of the wars as much as possible. And he also defended women who were accused of witchcraft. And he and his friends uh, were personally involved in defending women who would have been executed and then escorting them out of the territory to safety. So these are just, this is just a sampling of the things that he did. And then to, to right. reiterate the point even more that America was not what we were taught to expect, Cotton Mather, who we think of as you know, the ultimate, right, in Puritan judges. I mean, this is the guy that wrote the book about, about witchcraft trials, even though later he, he wasn't so much for it. Mm -hmm. He was a friend of John Winthrop the Younger. And when John Winthrop the Younger died, he wrote a eulogy for him. And in the eulogy, he refers to John Winthrop the Younger as Hermes Christianus, the Christian Hermes. I mean... Yeah. You know, what you know, the way we think of Puritans to use the pagan Hermes, whether it be the Egyptian or the Greek, and to compliment your beloved friend as the Christian Hermes. Right. You know, and this is coming from that guy. Um, it shows you that, it, that, that we have not been taught the history of our country. There's a lot of lost history on humanity in general, I think. Like, yes, very much so. You know, uh, I, I think, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the work that uh, Graham Hancock or uh, Randall Carlson uh, yeah, yeah. do, you know, about the uh, Younger Dryas uh, event and everything. And, you know, who knows, you know, there's there's could have been much more than what we have documented, which is well, like 20,000 years. And now you have Gobi Tech yeah. A, you know, showing like 40,000 years and stuff. Yeah, and, exactly. And even just, even with the history we do have, I mean, if you look at how long Egypt was there and was, was dominating world culture, 
you know, it's it's really an amazing. You can't even imagine. I mean, here we are sitting in a country that hasn't hit 250 yet. Yeah. Right. And there's thousands of years of Egyptian culture. And we'll be lucky if we make it to 250. <laughs> the way things are going right now. <laughs> yeah, we're definitely. Uh, well, you know what? To get to the uh, to the Pluto return of a country is in itself an achievement. Um, not a lot of, of them do. Rome did. And it had a nasty Pluto return, too, that in many ways parallels our own. And we actually wrote about that because it seems that the Orphic hymns as we have them may have been codified during that time, during the Severan dynasty in Rome. Wow. So, such, so, such interesting stuff. And, uh, Ronnie, you've been a fantastic guest. I could uh, go oh, on and you. on. And uh, it was so great to have you uh, on, the sh on the show. And how can everybody uh, find, about, find out about all things Ronnie Pontiac? If you, if you want to reach me um, at the Ronnie Pontiac, because there already was a Ronnie Pontiac, on Instagram okay. and also on threads, um, on Facebook, just as Ronnie Pontiac. And... Um, I have a brand new YouTube, which is, it's kind of different from, I mean, normal YouTubes. Like basically I use it for archiving. So you mm -hmm. have the playlists for all the podcasts and you also have um, early music, um, pre-Lucid Nation stuff. Lucid Nation was my band. And you also have, I'm going to be putting up starting on uh, this Saturday, lectures that I did back at PRS, including wow. um, the, the uh, marriage in a new world order. <laughs> <laughs> the first one. Yeah. That's, that's great. I, I'm going to have to check that out. That's awesome. Well, thank uh, you. Like, again, it was uh, great to have you on the show, baby. Next time we could have your wife on also. Anytime. Anytime you'd like to talk again, just let me know. I'm, I'm happy to. Great. Thank you so much. Take care. Thank you. Bye-bye.